Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. I'm Jen Might. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, and it's time for the News Roundup. Let's take you first to a courthouse in Manhattan where, guess what? Nothing much happened this week. So instead, let's talk about what did happen. And there's lots for us to get to. We're delighted to welcome back our guests who are ready to guide us through the week's news. Benji Sarlin is Washington Bureau Chief at Semaphore. Benji, great to have you back. Good to be here. Arthur Delaney is a reporter at the Huffington Post. Arthur, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And Megan Scully with Bloomberg News is here too. Megan, happy Friday. Thanks, you too. So let's wind the clock back to Wednesday afternoon. That's when Jerome Powell announced that the Fed would be increasing interest rates for the ninth time in a row. And he was blunt about the reason why he was raising the rate by a quarter of 1%. We have to bring inflation down to 2%. The costs of bringing it down, there are real costs to bring it down to 2%, but the costs of failing are much higher. You can have a long series of years where inflation is high and volatile, and we're looking to avoid that and, uh, you know, and to get back to where we need to be, back to where we were for a quarter of a century, and get there as quickly as we can. The Fed chair also affirmed that despite recent concern over the stability of the banking system, his plans for the year remain intact, and that nearly all of the Reserve's leaders expect to at least one more rate increase to come. Megan, what did you take away from this move and the reasons given by Fed Chair Jerome Powell? So basically, I think Chairman Powell was sending the message that more hikes are necessary to quell inflation, even if banks are in turmoil. This was a pretty aggressive stance. It could have he could have done they could have pushed for a higher hike. Um, but nonetheless, it it really um, showed, as you said, the ninth straight hike, and it brought inflation to the highest level since the eve of the 2008 financial crisis. He's having to juggle both inflation and this brewing banking turmoil. I don't want to call it a crisis just yet. Um, but they do. So he needs to increase rates to, to slow inflation that is just completely persistent. The, the, the job market is great. The spending is still high. Um, and that seems to be immune to the previous rate hikes. But at the same time now, we are having this secondary issue um, with, with banks and lenders. Well, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren renewed her call for the president to find a replacement for Jerome Powell. And she spoke to CNN on Thursday. I think he's doing a really terrible job. Remember, there are two, only two jobs for the Federal Reserve Chair. One is monetary policy, inflation. I think he's doing a very bad job there. And it's risking pushing our economy into a recession. His other job is regulatory oversight. And he has spent five years weakening regulations over these multi-billion dollar banks. Donald Trump nominated Jerome Powell for the chair of, of the Fed in 2018, and Joe Biden renominated him in 2021. Arthur, what sense, if any, do you have that the White House may be looking for new leadership here? They're not going to replace Jerome Powell. Uh, there may be vice chair positions that get filled with somebody more to Elizabeth Warren's liking. But her point about Powell, and you know, she's she's been a, against him from the start. 
She thinks he's comprehensively terrible for the job he's doing. Uh, he enthusiastically supported a rollback of bank regulations in 2018 that really set the stage for the bank failures that we saw this month. And she was against the interest rate strategy from the start as well, because the way this works is it hurts the economy, makes people spend less money, and people lose their jobs. That hasn't actually happened yet, but there's a lag on the rate hike's impact on the economy, and it may yet. And the, the, the bank instability adds fuel to the fire. Powell himself said it's like another rate hike all by itself, and he loves that. He wants things to get worse, and there's a consensus that that's good because inflation is so bad, and people like Elizabeth Warren stand outside that consensus because they don't believe millions of people should have to lose their jobs. Uh, Megan, is Senator Warren a lone voice in Congress on wanting new leadership? She's not. She... um she she's the loudest voice certainly um but you know i think the focus right now is on this vice chair position and and she and others are are pushing other democrats in particular are pushing for um a, a vice chair of the fed kind of the the number 2 over there who can really counter pal both on on rate hikes and on regulation of banks um they're really pushing for somebody who can powerfully um go after you know, the banking issue. Benji, as Megan alluded to, if the market stays spooked by all that's been going on, what risks do you see that the White House, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury could soon be out of options to make much of a difference? Well, that's what they're concerned about. They're already being a little ambiguous about what their remaining options are if things get worse, though at the moment things seem to be stabilized after the immediate crisis. They took pretty extraordinary measures to restore confidence in the banking system. They they declared that there was a systemic risk, therefore it was okay to um, guarantee that depositors would, you know, still be able to get their money in these failing banks, even though it was, you know, above the insured limits of those banks. And a lot of observers said, well, aren't you essentially guaranteeing every similar bank in the country? And they have been clear, no, no, we're not doing that. It's not even clear that it's legal that they can do that. But without quite saying it, that is how a lot of people are interpreting this. So if things spread further, if it turns out, you know, as interest rates rise, as more uncertainty spreads throughout the economy, there's another wave of unexpected financial crises. It's not totally sure how they would respond and at what point they would need Congress to step in to give them more options. Megan, pull on that thread a little bit because we, we've heard a lot of talk this week about the FDIC, that's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the cover it provides for depositors. Sure. So the the current insurance limit essentially is $250,000, and there's been a lot of talk about broadly increasing it. You saw, you saw that happen with the two banks that failed um, because of the systemic issues that were um, that, that were problematic there. But the, um, there's been calls to just to shore up, particularly these mid-sized banks and and, and others and, and depositors there to to increase the limit. The problem, though, you get into is that it costs money. You know, you increase your your insurance uh, coverage and the premium gets higher. So then it's a matter of who pays for it. Do businesses pay for it? Do only the wealthy who have deposits of more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars pay for it? Um, there's a lot of talk on Capitol Hill. And, and it's also uncertain how far Treasury can go on its own or the administration itself can go on its own and, and at what point Congress needs to step in. Well, one poll by the Associated Press and the University of Chicago this week found that just 10 percent of Americans have a, quote, great deal of faith in banks. Arthur, who should that worry most? 
I think that's how it's been for the general public. But when you talk about faith in banks or trust in banks, there's a separate question that's more important to regulators, which is they're, they're worried about depositors at regional banks trusting that their money will be protected because if they don't and they're panicky and they take their money out, that increases instability. That causes bank failures. That leads to bailouts. The general public knows all this intuitively uh, because everyone remembers the gigantic bailout from 2008, which bankers then uh, rewarded themselves with with bonuses. And uh, they make money, taking money out of your account with overdraft fees and things like that. So it's really not shocking to me that faith is so low, especially right after another bank bailout had to be orchestrated for these regional banks. Well, and that sort of echoes this comment we got from Kirby in Indiana, who says, your talk of inflation this morning is pretty infuriating. And I would hope you ask the question of why we keep raising interest rates on people who already can't afford anything, and those who are wealthy are not nearly as affected. Megan? So it's, uh, I I think I saw one analyst call it a steamroller effect to get the gallon of milk down, you know, two cents. Uh, and, And there's certainly... Many people, including Elizabeth Warren, who we discussed earlier, who are are very opposed and and feel as though these rate hikes um, hurt the the middle class and 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 also those you know at and below the poverty line much more so than they they do the wealthy. Um, it makes things like like food uh, harder to get, rent harder to pay, utilities as well. Um, but Jerome Powell, as as Fed chairman, sees this as as the the best and and bluntest tool to sort of battle back inflation, to try to get spending down and and to get the economy back to where it was, um, you know, to a more stable footing. Well, I want to get to a report by the Washington Post this week. Customers of America's four largest banks were greeted by an unfamiliar sight on Tuesday. Activists in rocking chairs blocking the entrances. And it's part of a national campaign by a group of seniors called Third Act. They want the big banks to stop financing fossil fuels. Here in D.C., activist Roxanne Ruckert laid out her concern to the Reuters news agency. Much of the infrastructure that's created by the fossil fuel industry, that infrastructure that harms us, is oftentimes adjacent to poor neighborhoods, to neighborhoods of color that oftentimes are disenfranchised and don't have the power to speak against such powerful interests. Now, it can be tempting to see the fossil fuel disinvestment movement as an issue championed by young people. But Benji, how much power does the baby boomer generation have? Well, in general, in politics, they tend to have a lot of power. That's just where there's a very large voting block. They tend to vote at much higher rates than younger generations. Um, They have a lot more savings and money and influence. It's just a group you have to listen to. Now, do I think that there is a huge baby boomer rebellion on this particular issue? I would be very skeptical. But um, yeah, this is definitely a, a, a cohort that has a lot of clout in our elections. Megan, your thoughts? You know, I, I saw one quote somewhere, somebody saying, you know, who was 65, saying, you know, in their lifetime, they had seen, you know, that the, the most damage had been had been done and they felt the need to give back. You know, these are people who spend money, who have many are retired, have time on their hands. Uh, they can make a lot of noise. And we're talking about it here. Um, and it wasn't a huge group. So and it's been covered pretty thoroughly. So I would say, you know, their voices certainly carry. We're rounding up the week's biggest headlines and we'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. 
But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to improving lives through invention, innovation, and climate action. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the news roundup. A quick update for those wondering what's going on in court in Manhattan this week. Despite reports that former President Donald Trump would be indicted this week, well, he hasn't. And some of you weren't surprised. We got this comment from Jay who says, I was highly skeptical that Trump was going to be indicted on Tuesday, primarily because the only source of that information was Donald Trump himself, and he has never been a reliable source of information. The grand jury in Manhattan has been hearing evidence about a hush money payment Trump made during the 2016 presidential campaign. The grand jury finished hearing from witnesses this week. Now they'll deliberate on whether there is probable cause Trump committed a crime in his payment to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty to federal charges involving the payment in 2018. The grand jury is expected to reconvene next week. But that's not the only investigation into the former president's conduct. Officials are looking into the classified documents found at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. On Wednesday, a federal appeals court ruled that Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran, must testify before a grand jury and hand over legal documents. The ruling is a blow to Trump's attempts to invoke attorney-client privilege to block his lawyer's testimony. Benji, why did the court rule against Trump's appeal? Well, this was an extremely unusual case. Normally, you do not have your own attorneys, you know, turn over evidence or have to testify because there's attorney-client privilege. But this is a case where the grand jury is in, you know, and the um, prosecutors are trying to show or discover whether there was a crime committed involving uh, Trump's um, relationship to his attorneys and Corcoran in particular. So here is the specific crime they are investigating. Um, What happened is that Trump's attorneys certified, you may remember that there were classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago and you remember there was this dramatic FBI search, you know, that turned up all these documents. But that was only the culmination of, you know, months and months and months of back and forth between Trump and the National Archives and the Justice Department around these documents. And along the way, Trump's attorneys put out a certified statement saying that Trump had already turned over all the classified documents. Later, that turned out to be completely untrue. You know, the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago and they found more than 100 additional documents, um, which prompted this, you know, this new phase in the investigation. So what the 
investigators are trying to show, what Jack Smith is trying to discover, is whether Trump was perpetuating a crime potentially by ordering his lawyers potentially to say something that wasn't true or giving them false information about those classified documents, or whether the lawyers perhaps in good faith just passed along a uh, letter that they thought was true. Uh, this is this is what they're trying to establish here. So that is why they've taken this extraordinary measure. They need to figure out what happened around this letter from his lawyers arguing that there were no more classified documents in Mar-a-Lago. Mm. So as we said, Evan Corcoran, Trump's attorney, is expected to testify today. I mean, Megan... I'm try- and we've all seen the, the legal shows, right, where the attorney will not testify against their own client. What do you expect to come from this testimony? Well, I mean, it it could be pretty damning. Um, I mean, he, the, the attorney, if if he was involved in this, it's called a a crime fraud exception. Is is the name of the the um, sort of the statute that allows him to 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 testify um, or and and. The special counsel is going to require him to do so, it it certainly seems. So um, if he could provide any evidence that, you know, Trump, that that there was there was intent that 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 he secured these or he moved these classified documents, you know, with intent that that could be hugely problematic for the president. Um, What's interesting to me is just how quickly they're moving with this case. Um, You know, it was, uh, you know, I. The Trump team had to respond within a matter of hours, and then the government was responding within a matter of hours. Um, and it really raises the question of what kind of classified material are we talking about here? And um, is it something that um, that, that is, is hugely concerning? Well, we mentioned Michael Cohen. Uh, he pleaded guilty and, and served time. What kind of legal jeopardy is Evan Corcoran potentially in, Benji? Well, that depends on what they find. I mean, if the story is that somehow, you know, Trump's attorneys were deliberately misrepresenting, you know, whether there were classified documents, they could be, you know, an extreme legal jeopardy themselves. But, you know, it's not, we have no evidence yet. We don't know the details yet of what happened. But figuring out exactly how this false statement came before the court is, you know, is really the heart of the matter here. Well, the former president was dealt another blow this week. The New York judge presiding over a $250 million civil fraud case against Trump blocked a request to delay his trial date, which is set for October. Arthur, what is this case about? So this is one of the two big cases in the news in New York. There are cases all over the country, basically. uh, But the one where we thought Trump was going to be arrested is the criminal case. This is the civil case where they want to impose giant fines, like you mentioned, and stop the Trump family from operating their real estate business in New York. And it overlaps with the criminal case, uh, where there was already the CFO of of Trump's company has pleaded guilty to a bunch of crimes and and been sentenced to prison. So uh, they wanted to postpone it. The thinking is so that it would be punted into the 2024 presidential cycle, and he'd be like, I'm the nominee, leave me alone. You can't be prosecuting me. I'm, I'm trying to be president here. The Republican Party has already said that I'm their guy. And the judge said, nope, uh, you should be familiar with this material. It's from your office. The trial will happen this October. You can move some intervening court dates around, but we're going to stick with our plan. I'm just, I'd love to hear from each of you, just what you make of this moment that we're in. We have a presidential candidate, someone running for office for a second term, 
And as you said, Benji, there are all of these court cases in play across the country. I'll come to you first, Arthur. Well, this is this is just how it is with Donald Trump. When he was running for president in 2016, people were suing him over Trump University. Do you remember Trump University? I do. And he was like, "Well, I'll never, I'll never settle this lawsuit." And then, as he was winning the presidency, sure enough, he settled it and, and paid these people millions of dollars for uh, having enrolled them in his ripoff school. And it's just, it's just been a nonstop cascade of lawsuits and counter lawsuits from Trump himself um, against his organization, against him. It's, it's a never-ending cycle, and it's basically what we collectively signed up for as a country when we elected him because he's been doing it all his life in his real estate business. I want to get to this comment from Chris who emails, Trump will never be arrested. He did nothing wrong. Stormy Daniels lied, and that's it. Benji, I'd love for you to respond to that because, as we said, Michael Cohen, Trump's former attorney, pleaded guilty to federal charges involving that payment to Stormy Daniels in 2018. Well, I would say that's your uh, your listener there is actually going farther than I think a lot of Republicans would even go in defending Trump, which is like he's talking about something that is less relevant to the legal standing, which is did Trump actually sleep with Stormy Daniels, as she claimed, and pay her off as hush money, you know, because of that? Um I'm not sure you're going to find members of Trump's family who think that's the case, even though Trump has steadfastly denied anything happened between him and Stormy Daniels, and he was paying her off just for reasons, I guess. Um, but, you know, but it goes to show how, you know, Trump has a lot of loyal followers and could kind of create his own reality around this. Um, and it gets to the other issue, which is that whether or not there is an indictment, um, we're starting to see that this could at least be an underlying political issue in some way. We've seen Ron DeSantis for the first time and some of his allies start to mention, hey, let's put the law aside. Why is, you know, a presidential candidate's getting involved in hush money payments with porn stars while they were married. You know, it's <laughs> that's kind of a separate matter. Megan? Although we're seeing some of Trump's, you know, most fervent supporters on Capitol Hill uh, stick by him, um, including members of the House Republican leadership like Speaker McCarthy. Um, and they're actually even fundraising off for themselves off of uh, this case, sending out emails to their supporters saying, you know, Keep us in the majority. Send me money. This is so unjust. And um, and so you're not seeing this. You know, you see it with DeSantis because he's going, you know, presumably to go head to head with Trump for the nomination. Um, but amongst his his backers on the Hill and, and, and really what has become the basis of the party, um, you're not seeing that fray just yet. Mm. But I'm wondering about the other ex- potential presidential candidates for the GOP and the position this puts them in. If it, it, it seems that they're trying to stay in the good graces of a part of the Republican base, but also trying to figure out how to position themselves as the better candidate. What do you think, Arthur? Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who is the, the one close challenger to Trump right now, even though he hasn't declared yet, is trying to have it both ways, like you suggested He said it's absurd that the prosecutor is going after Trump for this case. But he also, in his answers, has mentioned, you know, I don't know what goes into paying off, you know, paying hush money to a former porn star. And that was really unsatisfying to Trump's loyalists who said, Ron is not doing a good job. It goes to show you that there's no way to just glide past Trump without directly confronting him. 
And that should be scary for Ron DeSantis uh, because Trump has been so vicious in response to these pretty mild digs that DeSantis delivered. Uh, Trump is suggesting that maybe he's got some weird stuff in his past. I guess I don't need to really get into it. But you get the idea. Any last thoughts here, Bindi, before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I think Arthur's getting to the core of it. There is like since Trump took over the party by winning the presidential election in 2016, there's been no Republican anywhere in any context who has gone up to him in some kind of full frontal assault and not ended up effectively exiled from the party in some form. Um, And, you know, DeSantis, in order to become the nominee, will have to do that at some point. And so far, there's no evidence he's found an effective way to do it either. We're talking to Benji Sarlin, Washington Bureau Chief at Semaphore, Arthur Delaney, reporter at the Washington, at the Huffington Post, and Megan Scully from Bloomberg News. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. We're also hearing from you. We got this comment from Annette who says, just heard about boomers protesting and heard the repeated trope that we are wealthy or no, most of us live modestly. Yes, we are numerous, but that's not the same thing. Well, let's turn to some education news. Today, classes are back in session across the Los Angeles Unified School District following a three-day strike by school staff. Thousands of custodians, bus drivers, and other student services workers took to the picket lines. More than 500,000 students attend Los Angeles Unified Schools. It's the second largest school district in the country. Local 99 of the Service Employee International Union represents the workers. Megan, what are the workers' demands? They're demanding higher wages and uh, better working conditions. Uh, We're not talking about teachers here. A lot of these workers are hourly workers. They're classroom maids, they're cafeteria workers, they're bus drivers, and they make, you know, $18 to $24 an hour. Um, And in really, in jobs that... um, can be grueling at times, uh, and they are, are are demanding alongside teachers who stood out there on the picket lines with them um, to to be compensated for the work they do. What have we heard from Superintendent um, Alberta Carvalho about reaching some sort of agreement? Well, it, what's interesting is the schools reopened today, um, which is not something we're accustomed to seeing. You know, with the teacher strike, for instance, we um, you know schools stay closed until there is an agreement. Uh, these workers showed how difficult it is to run a school without them. Um, I have three kids, one of whom has a classroom aide. I understand how indispensable they are. Um, and um, not to mention the bus drivers and the cafeteria workers. But the um, there was no resolution after school reopened. You know, the hope is amongst these workers um, that uh, that they showed their importance to the to the school district. Um, but um, as, as far as I've seen today, uh, there isn't any agreement. Mm. Yeah, Arthur, we've heard a lot of talk in, in recent years about the teacher shortage, about the difficulty of getting new teachers into the pipeline. And this part of the workforce, the education workforce, is, is something we don't think about as much as we should. Are we seeing the same stresses on this part of the educational workforce as we're seeing on teachers? Well, it's part of the same broader picture, which is a a tight labor market where if you can switch jobs, you may be able to get a raise. And so people who are working in these educational support positions, which are often part-time jobs, may be looking at better opportunities. And the school system knows that. And they know the school system knows that. So they have a lot of leverage. So it's a good opportunity for them to flex their muscle, a better one than it has been 
in a lot of recent years where the economy was not so hot and you saw teacher strikes all across the country. Um, I saw one comment in the New York Times that suggested uh, some of these folks reckoned that the economy might not be as good for workers in the coming year. And so they wanted to strike now while uh, they could make their point. Well, let's stay in California for a moment. A bomb cyclone caused mudslides and two tornadoes to touch down near Santa Barbara and Los Angeles this week. State officials say at least five people were killed by falling trees. As the severe weather moved east, 50 million people faced a severe weather alert across much of the central and southern United States. Arthur, uh, what more can you tell us about this bomb cyclone and the weather that's moving through, moving through California? The bomb cyclone, it's uh, an area of low pressure. I think the thing to know is it was a really strong storm with almost hurricane-force winds that were strong enough to knock down lots of trees, which killed five people, and to blow out windows in high-rise office buildings in San Francisco. And it's just sad. It feels like California hasn't caught a break on bad weather for, like, several years. There there was that drought, remember? Mm -hmm. And all those wildfires, which scorched the earth, and now there's no vegetation holding the dirt together on these these hillsides, and, and you get mudslides. When there's all this, these atmospheric rivers and bomb cyclones. So when, when will it end? It's awful. Right. They actually also experience really heavy rainfall and widespread flooding over the winter. I mean, Megan, what does this mean for the state? So much of their economy is based on agriculture. Sure. Um, it, it would be um, – I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but I would say it, it has to be devastating to the economy there writ large. And particularly when you factor in all of these other economic conditions that we're talking about, um, some of which disproportionately affect California, such as the collapse of, of Silicon Valley Bank and um, the layoffs of, of thousands of tech workers. Um, and so this is just a, another hit uh, for the state, which is the has a a tremendously huge economy that has rippling effects across the U.S. Let's pause here for remembrance. Actor Lance Reddick, known for his roles in the television series The Wire and the John Wick movies, died last Friday. Reddick's breakthrough role came as Lieutenant Cedric Daniels on HBO's The Wire, which depicted crime and policing in Baltimore. I'll swallow a lie when I have to. I've swallowed a few big ones lately. But the stat games, that lie... It's what ruined this department. The fourth installment of the John Wick series premiered in Los Angeles on Monday. Reddick's co-stars, including Keanu Reeves, paid tribute. Reeves dedicated the film to Reddick's memory. Lance Reddick was 60 years old. Back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. Let's get back to the news roundup. U.S. lawmakers took on TikTok this week. Representatives questioned CEO Sho Chu for five hours on Thursday. Arthur, what are lawmakers' main concerns about TikTok? 
lawmakers think TikTok rots kids' brains and that it's controlled by China and will be used uh, as propaganda against the United States government. And, and this is a bipartisan consensus that was really remarkable at the hearing. I was there uh, yesterday. What questions did we hear from lawmakers at the hearing? There were some direct questions. Uh, uh, the chairman of the committee, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, reminded the TikTok CEO, you're on her oath, and I'm going to ask you now, are, do you know so-and-so and so-and-so? She, and she was referencing the names of officials at ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, who are also officials in the Chinese government. And he, uh, he admitted to, yes, I know who they are within ByteDance, and uh, which showed that the company does have this parent firm that is enmeshed with the Chinese government. Like everybody said, there's not really any reason given to doubt it, even though he said we are not controlled by China. So it just his testimony did not succeed. Benji, there are concerns lawmakers are are talking about around how TikTok handles its user data. But has there been any evidence of misuse so far? Well, there have been concerns, for example, about evidence that there was, for example, a keystroke logger of some kind built into the app at some point, which they were afraid could be used to, you know, potentially collect, you know, data in a in a dangerous manner. Um, TikTok has been working very hard to try to reassure lawmakers about some of the concerns about user data, which is why this hearing was kind of such a disaster. Um, so the main thing that Congress, that members of Congress kept bringing up and have been worried about is that under Chinese law, they, uh, the Chinese government can look at user data, you know, on security grounds. They can request it. And so this has raised the, you know, fear that, you know, TikTok can say whatever they want, but if parent company ByteDance gets that notice from the Chinese government, they're going to have to hand over American user data. So to try to deal with this, um, TikTok has been in negotiations with the U.S. government, has been going out on their own plan as well that they call Project Texas to try to house all the U.S. user data um, in the United States overseen by a American company, Oracle, to try to solve the problem. And it was pretty clear from the very first minutes of this hearing that Democrats, Republicans, lawmakers of all stripes, they are just not buying this as a middle ground. They think there's just still too much potential exposure to user data. Well, let's hear from TikTok's CEO, Sho Chu. He's talking here about his company not mishandling Americans' user data. We have legacy U.S. data sitting in our servers in Virginia and in Singapore. We're deleting those, and we expect that to be complete this year. When that is done, all protected U.S. data will be under the protection of U.S. law and under the control of the U.S.-led security team. This eliminates the concern that some of you have shared with me, that TikTok user data can be subject to Chinese law. This goes further, by the way, than what any other company in our industry have done. So in spite of the CEO's assurances here, the congresspeople at the hearing seem pretty unconvinced. So, Megan, what comes out of this? So I think Congress and and the administration are weighing a couple of different options here. We've seen, you know, bans on TikTok, on on government-owned devices. Some states are are implementing that as well or starting to to implement it. Um, There's also been talk of... Um, banning it, banning TikTok in some capacity nationwide, um, and also forcing a sale, um, which Beijing really 
opposes, but forcing ByteDance to sell TikTok. Um, you know, this has become kind of a proxy fight in, in the broader U.S.-China tensions. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and there's there's a lot of questions about how far the administration can go and uh, what Congress should do. You know, the administration says Congress needs to step in here to act on any kind of ban, for instance. Well, protesters in D.C. expressed support for the social media platform Wednesday. Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman joined them. Our First Amendment gives us the right to speak freely and to communicate freely. And TikTok as a platform has created a community and a space for free speech for 150 million Americans and counting. They talked to me about finding a place where they could communicate with others like them and learn to love themselves even further. Arthur, who on Capitol Hill wants TikTok to stay? That was him, Jamal Bowman. He was the only, you know, basically nobody else. Um, and he's right. The, the, I think that the threat that it poses is largely theoretical. And for now, everyone's using it and a lot of people really like it. Uh, and there's a, there is a difference between the two parties on this, even though there was general agreement yesterday. And that is that Democrats spoke more about wanting a comprehensive approach to social media, uh, privacy protection, and, and the danger to youth, whereas Republicans were more like, let's just ban TikTok. And uh, there is also a lot of concern, uh, more so among Democrats, that if they do ban TikTok, young people are going to be mad at them and not vote for them. Uh, but some lawmakers I talked to just said, "Yeah, well, if we ban TikTok, some other company will just fill the void there. And I actually find that easy to believe, especially if you look at how Instagram has already started copying TikTok. Well, I mean, but Benji, that brings up a, a good point about the broader discussions around social media user data, the effect on social media on young people. A lot of energy around TikTok right now, but are we seeing any broader movement around that in Congress? Uh, it's been less focused, certainly, on some of the issues with youth that were being raised. I mean, the strongest argument, which Bone has been making and Arthur alluded to, is that, look, if you're going and holding a hearing on TikTok and you're pointing to, for example, teens are addicted to this and teens are seeing harmful material and teens are seeing, you know, terrible content, you know, about that encourages, you know, uh, poor mental health, that encourages suicide even, uh, that they're seeing violent imagery, there's no reason you wouldn't apply the same critique to every single American social media company. These are all things that Congress, in fact, has looked at in, in previous hearings. Um, so banning TikTok would not solve any of those things. Now, is there a comprehensive plan to deal with this, this is where people get a lot more divided. There's a, you know, both Republicans and Democrats often want to change the way that social media is regulated, but for different reasons. Um, you know, Republicans often want uh, less content moderation because they see it as a way to censor conservative voices. Um, Democrats often want, you know, to change the law to encourage more content moderation because they see it as a vector for misinformation or harmful material like they were discussing in the TikTok case. It's possible you could see some joint movement eventually on more restrictions for young people and minors, but there still is not one obvious, you know, legislative vehicle that everyone's going to get on board the way with TikTok where there really is a potential for like, I mean, soon, you know, a, a 
legislation passing with huge bipartisan majorities. We got this comment from Reed who says, it's naive to believe China is not collecting data from American users. Google, Meta, and Twitter do the same, which is more dangerous. Megan, I'm curious what we learned from these hearings about how big of an influence social media is right now, whether it's TikTok or Facebook or Twitter or any other social media platform that it seems most people are on right now. Sure. Well, we've seen all of those CEOs uh, come before Congress in the last year or so. Um, and there's a, a constant um, questioning about, you know, the influence, particularly, you know, we saw this play out with Twitter and the, the 2020 election um, and uh, misinformation um, being shared and and. Um, and you know, we saw the former president even go out and start his own social media platform. So, um, you know, clearly, social media has become this. Um, it's been mainstream for a long time. Now it's it, it's prevalent, uh, and in in how we do our our jobs, um, how children are educated. You know, teachers use YouTube. Um, many use TikTok even uh, to to show lessons to the to the kids in their class. Um, that it it really has rippled through every facet of our society at this point. We're talking to Megan Scully from Bloomberg News, Benji Sarlin, Washington Bureau Chief at Semaphore, and Arthur Delaney, reporter at the Huffington Post. We're also hearing from you. Ben shared this about Lance Reddick. Mr. Reddick was also one of the main characters in the Horizon Zero Dawn video game series. Despite his death, an extension of the game is being released in a couple of weeks in which he plays a prominent role. As fans of the game, it's going to be hard to watch knowing he won't be able, he won't be able to be in the third installment whenever Gorilla releases it. He will be missed. You can always add your voice and questions to the conversation. Email us at 1A at WAMU.org. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. Let's turn now to Dominion Voting Systems, $1.6 billion defamation case against right-wing channel Fox News. Now, Dominion alleges Fox executives and hosts gave airtime to guests knowing they would share false information about the 2020 election, including false claims that Dominion's voting machines led to Donald Trump's loss. Benji, what does Dominion have to prove in this defamation case? So the phrase here is malice. Um, the press generally has very strong protection against lawsuits, especially, you know, if it's about passing on, you know, someone's opinion or passing on, you know, reporting on something someone said that turned out not to be true. Um, There's a very high barrier in which you have to prove that they were knowingly spreading false information or that they had reckless disregard for for the truth. And Dominion, uh, a lot of observers feel like, has a much better chance than most of meeting that standard because of the kind of um, unique situation after the election in which Fox News was very worried about turning off their viewers who were at that point just absolutely enraptured by a series of false conspiracy theories about the election that essentially required uh, hosts to at least humor them in some way and show that they were concerned similarly about these non-existent uh, election fraud uh, scenarios, even you know as they tried to skirt endorsing them themselves, perhaps. And so this is really a high-stakes case, um, and it's going to be very fascinating to see how it plays out uh, in the next few weeks. So pretrial hearings were held this week. The trial is scheduled for April 17th. The judge said Wednesday that Rupert Murdoch, chairman of Fox News parent company Fox Corporation, may be compelled to testify. How important is Murdoch's testimony to this case, Benji? 
It's extremely important because uh, it's a very delicate um, legal defense that Fox has here, which is that we've already seen come out in evidence, you know, all these internal communications from Fox, including, you know, uh, hosts, producers, you know, Rupert Murdoch himself has already given testimony in this regard, uh, you know, saying that like, wow, this is a bunch of incredibly, you know, shaky information that we're being forced to discuss on air and I don't like it. Um, but, you know, this information ended up there anyway. But what Fox has said is that, you know, Murdoch has Murdoch and the network did not, you know, directly endorse these theories. It, there's a difference between, say, you know, airing, uh, you know, Sidney Powell, you know, an attorney who's making false claims and, you know, Fox News itself saying we endorse the idea that the election was stolen, you know, vis-a-vis the following conspiracies. So, I think a, a lot of the testimony a lot uh, would be about trying to get further confirmation from Murdoch that, you know, despite these claims, Fox executives knew that they were ha- they were promoting false information. They could have stopped it. They didn't. They encouraged it because they needed to, you know, keep their viewers on board for financial reasons. So that is uh, the core of the case. And Murdoch's uh, take on this is sort of central to it. Well, this week, Fox News producer Abby Grossberg filed lawsuits in New York and Delaware that claim the network discriminated against her based on her gender. She also says the network's lawyers coached her in a, quote, coercive and intimidating manner before her September deposition in the Dominion case. Uh, Megan, how could Grossberg's claims affect the Dominion lawsuit? Well, it's just another example of the messiness of all of these lawsuits that we have talked about today um, involving Trump and then this one involving the the 2020 election. Um, You know, she's saying her her testimony was was coerced um, and uh, and that uh, that. And Fox is countering that. They filed a restraining order to prevent her from testifying here. Um, and there's going to be a lot of back and forth. He said, she said, there are text messages between her and a Fox News host, you know, applauding Trump, applauding some of uh, Trump's top aides. Um, and uh, so you're going to see sort of this back and forth between her lawyers and and uh, Fox's lawyers on it. And before we wrap up our domestic portion of the news roundup for this week, I'd love to hear from each of you about a story you're following or a story you will be following in the coming weeks, or maybe one that you think didn't get enough attention this week. Arthur, I'll start with you. Well, we'll keep following the the bank failures and the the fact that Congress set the stage for them. Benji, what about you? Well, we have a big scoop today on Semaphore. Uh, Paul Rusesa Bagina of Hotel Rwanda fame is being released from prison. So that's something we're definitely going to be tracking throughout this week. And Megan? The debt ceiling um, is something that's fallen by the wayside with this banking crisis, but uh, it's getting closer and closer. So we're watching that closely. That's Megan Scully from Bloomberg News, Benji Sarlin, Washington Bureau Chief at Semaphore, and Arthur Delaney, reporter at The Huffington Post. Thanks to you all. And before we head into the international edition of the News Roundup, congratulations are in order. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden honored the recipients of the 2021 National Humanities Medal and National Medal of Arts at the White House. The list of honorees included Bruce Springsteen, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Colson Whitehead. The event had been previously delayed due to the COVID pandemic. During the celebration of Springsteen's long career, which includes 3,000 concerts worldwide, President Biden joked that some people are, quote, just born to run. run. 
We'll be back to discuss some of the week's biggest international headlines. The News Roundup continues. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. It's the international edition of the News Roundup, where we break down the biggest stories around the world. Coming up, the world marks two decades since the start of the Iraq War, a manhut in northern India, and more than a million protesters take to the streets in France as President Macron vows the retirement age will move from 62 to 64. Lots to talk about, so let's bring in our guests. Katrina Manson covers cyber and national security at Bloomberg. Katrina, it's great to have you back. Thanks so much. Also with us, Jennifer Williams, deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Hi, Jen. Hey, great to be here. And Joyce Karam. Joyce is senior news editor at Al Monitor. Joyce, it's always great to have you. Same, Jen. Hello. So we start today in Syria with, quote, precision airstrikes by the U.S. in the northeast of the country. Joyce, tell us what happened and who these airstrikes were targeting. Uh, So we learned from the Pentagon uh, around uh, 11 p.m. last night that uh, the U.S. carried out airstrikes in uh, uh, in Syria in response to uh, a drone attack in northeast Uh, Syria that killed uh, one uh, U.S. contractor and injured uh, five U.S. service members and another uh, uh, U.S. contractor. Uh, In retaliation, uh, President Joe Biden authorized strikes in uh, in northeast uh, uh, Syria. What we know so far is uh, those that have been injured are, are doing, are recovering uh, fine, but uh, that the U.S. airstrikes targeted Iran-backed militia uh, in, in the east of the country, and Syrian reports are indicating that 11 were killed in those. Uh, the Pentagon also said the drone attack uh, that uh, that hit uh, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Uh, presence in in Hasaka in northeast Syria. Uh, the drone itself originated uh, from Iran. This is at least the third time uh, we see such incidents between uh, uh, Iran uh, uh, supported militias in Syria and uh, the Biden administration. In this case, the response was uh, very swift and quick from the uh, U.S. side. Uh, We don't know, however, if this will actually deter Iran since uh, previous uh, other two responses in the past have not done so. Well, this isn't the first time the U.S. has conducted airstrikes in Syria over tensions with Iran. Under President Joe Biden, the U.S. conducted strikes in February and June of 2021, as well as August 2022. Jen, what effect is this likely to have on U.S. efforts to de-escalate tension in the wider Middle East? Well, you know, I think in many ways this is something that has been ongoing for quite a long time. Um, it doesn't get a ton of attention unless something like this happens and it makes headlines for a day or two. But this is basically part of a 
ongoing low-level proxy war that has been going on uh, for years now in this specific region is a heavily militarized region of Syria where the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, the IRGC, has a ton of presence. It has military bases there. It has all of these um, backed militias, some of which are pro-Assad, some of which have, you know, direct ties to Iran. Some have, uh, there are Afghan militias there as well that have ties to Iran. Um, so, you know, and just so people remember, America still has more than 900 troops and hundreds more contractors in Syria. And many are in this area working with uh, Kurdish fighters and others to make sure that basically that there's no ISIS resurgence. So, you know, there is still a presence. This has been going on. I think in terms of the broader region, um, you know, this is, like I said, in many ways has been going on. So I don't think it's going to directly impact in the sense of, you know, U.S.-Iran tensions have been higher in the past. Um, They've also, you know, been lower in the past. I don't think this in particular is going to make or break anything in the sense that U.S.-Iran ties are not great as it is already the Iran nuclear deal, you know, attempts to revive it are all but dead. So I don't think it's going to, in that sense, going to make a huge difference. But it is just a reminder that, that this is a low-level war that is ongoing and, and, you know, shouldn't necessarily be ignored. Katrina, how vulnerable are U.S. troops in the area? Extremely vulnerable. You talked about precision airstrikes at the beginning. I think what the U.S. doesn't have is precision defense. Uh, this drone problem, uh, the U.S. has been trying to get a handle on since 2016, when ISIS started really using drones together, there's one attack that the U.S. ended up calling Day of the Drones, where ISIS used 70 drones together. And these are really simple, uh, cheap, small drones. Um, And and the Iranians have, according to the U.S., really, really developed this capability. Uh, I remember meeting the CENTCOM commander at the time, General uh, Frank McKenzie, and he He told me that the U.S. has basically lost complete air superiority in the skies for the first time since the Korean War uh, back in the 1950s. Uh, And and that was in 2021. And and if you look at what uh, his his successor, General Eric Carrillo, is saying, he he says the U.S. have come under uh, attack, U.S. troops have come under attack 78 times since 2021 from Iranian-backed groups. And NBC is reporting that three defence officials said one of the radars used to detect incoming threats was down for maintenance. So it's not clear if that played a role in this attack. But I, th- I think the point is that these, these drones are um, difficult for the US to detect and defend against. And um, as Jennifer said, it's, it's really quite likely that this, this uh, sort of exchange uh, can continue. Well, Joyce, El Monitor also reported strikes in the Syrian city of Aleppo this week conducted by Israel. What can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, so this happened on Tuesday. Uh, the second attacks, airstrikes uh, by Israel in uh, uh, targeting Aleppo uh, this month. Uh, the Israelis are suggesting that they hit a missile warehouse uh, for Iran uh, near uh, at the airport. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is, again, it shows the fragility of the situation in Syria, the ongoing conflict, and the many... Uh, proxy wars you have uh, happening uh, at once. Uh, So uh, on the one hand, you have Turkey threatening an incursion uh, from the north. You have the U.S. bombing in the northeast. You have uh, pro-Iran militias uh, launching uh, drone attacks. And uh, you have Israel bombing in the northwest in uh, in Aleppo. So, uh, Jen, uh, what we're seeing diplomatically is uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad is being 
being rehabilitated uh, on the Arab and the diplomatic uh, stage, but the war itself is still uh, very much uh, raging. Uh, just this uh, morning, again, we have clashes in, in Aleppo. Uh, we have, we're seeing signs of uh, ISIS uh, resurgence and what Israel uh, has been doing in Syria in the last few years is still doing undeterred now by uh, targeting uh, Iranian uh, uh, presence or uh, warehouses. Well, let's turn to Israel now. Protests continued this week there. Thousands of people flooded the streets yesterday for a so-called day of shutdown. They were protesting an ongoing overhaul of their country's judicial system by the right-wing government. And we've been following this story for months, but a big update came yesterday when Israel's parliament voted to change the conditions required to remove a prime minister from office. Jennifer, there's a lot to this story, but why is this latest news important? Sure. So this is basically the first step in that broader kind of slate of judicial overhauls that the new, you know, far-right Israeli government has uh, proposed making. So this is the first one that is actually gone through, essentially. So by 61 to 47 final vote, the Knesset approved this bill. This one in particular is about um, who can remove the prime minister uh, for being unfit. Basically, the bill makes it so that uh, only the prime minister himself or the cabinet with a two-thirds majority can declare the leader unfit. Uh, The cabinet would then have to vote. It would have to be ratified by a supermajority in the parliament. But what this is meant to do is essentially to, to stop the Supreme Court or the attorney general's office from being able to influence a a possible impeachment or for being able to take out the prime minister and and force him to step down. The previous existing situation, the concern among Benjamin Netanyahu uh, was that maybe the attorney general, who currently is someone who was appointed by the previous government, could say, look, the prime minister is unfit to govern because he's trying to halt these court cases that he's being investigated for, for corruption and and other charges. So there was this concern among Netanyahu and his allies that the attorney general, the Supreme Court, could um, essentially force him to step down. So they made this first big change to say, no, 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 it's only the Knesset, uh, it's only, sorry, the cabinet or the prime minister who can do that. But again, it's part of this broader slate that you mentioned, Jen, of proposed legislative changes that would give the government more power over the Supreme Court would kind of rebalance the the balance of power, the checks and balances between the Supreme Court and the government. So this is the concern that we've been seeing that, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu and this right-wing government is trying to erode the separation of powers, pulling the country on this path toward autocracy. Now Netanyahu's administration says, look, we need these changes. The balance of power is out of whack. The judicial branch has way too much power. There are liberal judges. They've become too interventionist. But everyone can see this is very much about trying to keep Netanyahu safe from prosecution and from being kicked out. On Sunday, President Biden spoke to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. According to the White House, he expressed concerns over the plan we've been discussing to weaken Israel's Supreme Court. Days later, Israel's white right-wing government made another move concerning to the Biden administration. It repealed a 2005 law banning settlements in part of the West Bank. On Capitol Hill this week, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken described the need for the West Bank to reach a quote-unquote period of calm. It's important for everyone to try to double down on the steps necessary uh, to try to get there because it's profoundly not in the interests of Israel 
uh, our close ally and partner, or for that matter, the Palestinian Authority, to see this cycle uh, cycle up. In response to the lifting of the ban on West Bank settlements, the White House issued a diplomatic rebuke to Israel. Joyce, what happened and how rare of an event is this? Well, it is it is kind of rare. It's not it was not a summoning, but it is a rebuke. And it's a response. The Biden administration is basically losing patience with this government uh, in Israel, whether when it comes to uh, the domestic politics of Israel or its actions uh, in the West Bank. What you described, Jen, with the uh, settlements issue uh, is, is, is a major one. Uh, so we saw uh, Deputy Secretary of State number two at the State Department. Uh, Wendy Sherman called a meeting with Israel's ambassador to the U.S., uh, Michael Herzog, uh, over the new law uh, that would uh, allow Israeli settlers to go back to four settlements that were evacuated in 2005 in the occupied uh, West Bank. Uh, Mind you, uh, the land that they would return to, even by Israeli records and standard, is deemed as private and Palestinian uh, owned. Uh, But uh, you're seeing in in just the last uh, seven days, you're seeing this uh, this uh, legislation. Uh, you're seeing also uh, the Israeli finance minister uh, in a speech in Paris on uh, on Sunday. Smotrich uh, said basically that uh, Palestinian people and culture they just don't exist. So uh, this is uh, an extreme level. Uh, for uh, for Washington, for the Biden administration, and President Biden's call with Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu was exactly to express uh, this concern and to express uh, anxiety over the, the trajectory of uh, uh, of Israel. Uh, and it's not just Washington. I mean, just today in uh, uh, in London and uh, just last week in Germany, uh, Bibi Netanyahu is visiting uh, uh, when he was visiting these two capitals. We. Saw so Israelis protest outside over the judicial overhaul. So it's a very sensitive moment in uh, Israeli politics uh, and its behavior in, in the Palestinian territories. And it's something that's uh, very concerning for uh, the U.S. administration because, as Secretary Blinken said, this is their closest ally in, in the region. Well, a massive manhunt is underway in India for a Sikh separatist leader who has revived calls for an independent homeland. Amritpal Singh and his aides are being called a, quote, national security threat by Indian police. They're accused of creating discord in the northern Indian state of Punjab. Singh has been on the run since March 18th. In India, Sikhs make up less than 2% of the country's population. That's about 20 million people. The state of Punjab is the only Indian state with a Sikh majority. Jennifer, backtracking on the story a little bit, what is this separatist movement for an independent homeland? It's known as Khalistan. Right. So the Khalistan movement, um, the origins go back all the way to, you know, around the time of India's independence from from Britain in 1947. Um, At the time, some Sikhs demanded an independent nation in the state of of Punjab. Punjab is where the religion was founded. And as you said, uh, it's the one place where Sikhs who are otherwise a really small minority in India have a majority. 
Since then, there has been this movement. It has gained popularity over the years. Uh, many times led to violent clashes between the Indian government and the Khalistani rebellion. Uh, in the 1980s, we saw what was basically the peak of this kind of almost insurgency. Um, there were six separatists in Punjab who committed uh, a lot of attacks, massacres of civilians, bombings, um, human rights abuses on minority Hindus in the area. The Indian security forces, including the Indian Army, uh, led counterinsurgency operations in response. Um, there was this really famous incident, uh, the storming of the Golden Temple. Um, that was in 1984. Uh, this is one of the holiest shrines in Sikhism. This was on the orders of the former Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. This was a huge flashpoint, not just for Sikhs in Punjab, but kind of you know the diaspora around the world. Um, people may remember Gandhi was assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards in the aftermath for this. So this is the kind of whole background that you have that is causing so much consternation right now, given that, you know, this leader Singh is kind of stirring up a lot of fears on, on kind of both sides that we could be seeing a, a kind of return to this you know, tit-for-tat violence. Um, he even made controversy last month. He threatened um, the Indian Home Minister, Amit Shah, suggesting that the minister could meet the same fate as Indira Gandhi for speaking against the Khalistan movement. So he's very specifically kind of making these ties back to that era. Well, the manhunt also caused a diplomatic tit-for-tat uh, between India and the UK, Jen. What happened? Right. So as you mentioned, there was this big manhunt. There was an incident um, basically uh, that happened um, in February. So hundreds of Singh supporters stormed this local police station, um, uh, demanding the release of an aid. So the Indian government has launched this big manhunt. They've arrested more than 100 people linked to the incident. Singh, as you said, has been on the run. Um, Basically, over this, uh, as this was underway, protests broke out among diaspora groups, uh, Sikh diaspora groups in Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. The Indian consulate in London, um, there were protesters uh, who tore down the Indian flag and replaced it with the Khalistan flag. In response, India got mad and said, look, they summoned the, the top U.K. diplomat in New Delhi and said, look, you know, we, we don't think that you were uh, protecting um, you know, the premises in London appropriately. Where was security? What's going on? How did you allow this to happen? Uh, and then in it, as you said, tit for tat, in a very somewhat petty move, the Indian government then decided, okay, fine, we'll reduce security outside the British High Commission here in New Delhi and the High Commissioner's residence. So they took down these yellow metal barricades that usually provide this kind of extra layer of protection. They didn't say anything about it. They just kind of quietly moved these barriers mm. aside. So it was a really messy kind of, you know, diplomatic spat, but, you know, against this broader backdrop of very serious kind of issues dealing with Sikh separatism and a lot of the diaspora populations of which there are, you know, significant in the UK as well as, you know, in Canada and the US. And one more bit of news out of India. The former leader of India's main opposition political party, Rahul Gandhi, has been disqualified as a lawmaker from the lower house of parliament. This came a day after he was also handed a two-year jail sentence for defamation. 
Now we turn to several stories in Africa. Somalia is one of the poorest countries in the world. It's been battered by years of war and decades of political instability, and now it's facing another drought. A new report on this drought in Somalia estimates that 43,000 people died last year. Officials believe half were children under the age of five. According to the United Nations, more than 1.8 million people in Somalia were displaced by the drought in 2022, and over 500,000 have already been displaced this year. This is Mohamed Ahmad Diriye. He left his coastal city in Somalia with his family and livestock after the drought decimated his land. He says they had to walk more than 1,000 kilometers to get food and shelter. He spoke to Al Jazeera reporters in rural Somalia. If you walk some distance out of here, you will see lots of bones. Lots of animal bones piled up on the top of each other. From all the corners, the sight of these bones will shock you, not only here but throughout the region. Katrina, you reported on the drought in Somalia in 2017 and 2018. Why is this drought so catastrophic? Um, well, this one we're into the sixth rainy season that is um, that is failing. And uh, it's, it's certainly worse than 2017 and 18. At, at the moment, it's not as bad as the famine that was declared in 2011. Uh, but I think something that's complicated the, the the very bad conditions now is that the government's actively fighting Shabab in areas where uh, the drought is the impact of the drought is being felt, and certainly government officials are saying that um, there are reports that Shabab is not letting people um, get the help that they need. And, and certainly, when I was there in uh, 2011, uh, th- that's what people told me. They told me they were escaping Shabab, and Shabab hadn't allowed them to get access to uh, food or aid. And now we're hearing these are unconfirmed reports, my side, but uh, that, that that water wells and livestock are being uh, severely affected in those areas that Shabab and the government are fighting, and and you know the predictions are that eighteen to thirty four thousand more people will die in the next six months. So I know that people are very carefully monitoring rainfall expected for April to June. It's not looking like it will be quite as bad, uh, but, but, but it could still reach famine proportions. I just want to mention Al-Shabaab is an Islamist insurgent group uh, based in Somalia. It's also known as the youth. Katrina, you've been speaking to your contacts on the ground there. What have they told you? I, I think the main thing really is this this need that the government feels to try and get uh, support out to people, um, but but they're overwhelmed. You know, they they it, it's a fragile government in a country that's still fighting Shabab with different areas uh, don't all see the government the same way. And uh, there's certainly an appeal for humanitarian support. I think the US is is the biggest donor, as it usually is on that. But I think the Somalis certainly feel that Ukraine is distracting uh, people and, and just trying to keep an issue like this, which is a recurrent issue in uh, uppermost in people's mind, is something that they're really... Uh, struggling to make known. Well, as you say there, Katrina, for decades, Somalia received food and aid from the international community. But Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year changed that. The war between Ukraine and Russia has worsened distribution of oil and wheat, which are not available. We bring the food all the way from Mogadishu, and the prices have skyrocketed since our land is dry and unproductive. That's Khadija Ibrahim, a shopkeeper in rural Somalia. Katrina, how has the war in Ukraine affected aid and food distribution to Somalia and the Horn of Africa? I think it's part of a global picture of 
of rising prices and supply chain difficulties, and obviously Ukraine being a, a, a big uh, exporter of, of grain in the past, certainly, um, all of that is having an impact on, on the ground in Somalia. And so to have rising prices at a time that people can't get access to things, and of course, people in Somalia are largely nomadic. They're very dependent on cattle, as you heard from um, the person you heard on the ground talking about the piling up of bones. I mean, th this is a community that is terribly dependent on, um, on very little. And it is very, very hardy, uh, but not being able to get extra supplies um, and at a time of uh, high food inflation, you can imagine that these are some of the people who are most vulnerable in the world who are even more affected by this very complex global supply chain crisis that we see. Well, let's turn now to Uganda. The country's parliament passed a quote-unquote anti-homosexuality bill on Tuesday. It passed with overwhelming support. It'll now be sent to President Yoweri Museveni for a decision. The president risks losing international aid if he signs it. Identifying as gay is now illegal under this law, or rather it's already illegal, and people can be punished for not reporting someone in a same-sex relationship. Here's what Volker Turk, United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, had to say about it. Let us be clear, this is not about values. Promoting violence and discrimination against people for who they are and who they love is wrong. And any disingenuous attempts to justify this on the basis of values must be called out and condemned. Jen, as I said, same-sex relationships were already illegal in Uganda. So what do these new laws consist of? Right. These basically make some crimes punishable by death. Uh, and impose up to 20 years um, in prison for people who identify as LGBTQ+. Um, it's basically a, a just a further crackdown on LGBTQ people in a country, as you said, where it was already illegal. Um, but it also targets this kind of broader array of, of activities and, and includes a ban on promoting and abetting homosexuality, as well as conspiracy to engage in homosexuality. Um, and, and one of the big concerns here too, is that, you know, what aiding and abetting, you know, promoting homosexuality means, um, it, you know, groups who provide aid, you know, um, NGOs, advocacy groups are all very concerned. You know, they were already, um, you know, in a, in a country that was already very anti-gay. However, um, you know, even if they themselves may not be homosexual and not, you know, engaging in homosexuality, if they are providing support, you know, even something like uh, you know, providing condoms um, to prevent against, you know, HIV and other sexually transmitted infections, things like that could potentially be subject to, um, you know, to arrest and imprisonment. And so this is kind of just a further um, dampening down of, you know, any kind of um, promotion as they see it of what, you know, what they essentially call, you know, deviant acts, um, promiscuity, uh, anything that goes against what they call traditional family values. Um, you know, and I think it's really important just for for listeners to understand, too, that, you know, these are the strictest laws basically in the world. Um, but these aren't necessarily kind of um, indigenous to Uganda. A lot of these have a long legacy, both of British colonial era anti-sodomy laws that were kind of brought in and, and installed in many um, parts of Africa by British colonizers, 
as well as American evangelical groups, some that have um, proselytized and spread this anti-gay message in these countries, especially in Uganda. Let's jump in here with the strengthening relationship between China and Russia. Chinese leader Xi Jinping traveled to Russia for a three-day visit this week. Katrina, Russian President Putin called Xi his dear friend during the visit. What were the aims of this trip? Well, I think that pretty much sums it up. Um, I think Russia really needs China at the moment. And China is, to a certain extent, giving Russia what it wants and also really asserting itself on the world stage as a potential peace broker in in the way that China is talking about it. And of course, this is fresh from China brokering a deal between Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia of sorts. This is quite unprecedented and has left the US looking like it it may not be the the world's mediator. Um, So I, I think there's a certainly a perspective in which China is trying to step up and claim a much larger world role. But Russia is not getting everything it needs from China, despite a very clear effort to show that the two are moving together, united, of course, in opposition uh, to, to, to the US. Uh, but, it, but it hasn't got the gas pipeline that it was hoping to get confirmed from China. Uh, Besides that, it is getting a lot of the right noises. And I think the U.S. opposition to this visit has been very clear with Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, uh, saying any effort to freeze the war, call a ceasefire and essentially solidify Rus- Russian um, positions in Ukraine would, would, would not in any way be acceptable to the U.S. or, or of course, to Ukraine. Well, here's White House spokesperson John Kirby speaking about China's relationship with Russia. I don't think you can reasonably look... Uh, at, at China as impartial in any way. Um, they haven't condemned this in, in uh, this invasion. Um, they haven't stopped buying Russian oil and Russian energy. Um, President Xi saw fit to fly all the way to Moscow, hasn't talked once to President Zelensky, hasn't visited Ukraine, hasn't bothered to uh, avail himself of the Ukrainian objective. And uh, he and his regime keeps parroting the Russian propaganda that this is somehow the, a, a war of the West on Russia, that it's some sort of existential threat to Mr. Putin. That's just a bunch of malarkey. Ukraine posed no threat to anybody, let alone Russia. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said this week the relationship has been described as, quote, a marriage of convenience. Joyce, how is NATO responding to this growing alliance? Uh, well, the visit is itself should be alarming uh, to NATO. This was a two-layer uh, visit, uh, Jen. We saw the optics, the public uh, display, calling each other dear friend, uh, a strong leader. Uh, so this was visible. This we knew about. What we don't know anything about is the four and a half hour meeting that went on between uh, Xi and President Xi and uh, President Putin. Uh, Little has been uh, disclosed about that meeting. Uh, And as uh, as we know, China has uh, put out a peace plan, a 12-point peace plan between uh, Russia uh, uh, and Ukraine. But so far, it hasn't uh, it hasn't gotten much uh, gravity uh, to it. Uh, What we are seeing from China, though, and this is a point that the White House made, is 
uh, on issues of energy, on issues of uh, economic uh, uh, cooperation, it has uh, definitely uh, picked uh, and casted its lot with uh, Vladimir Putin, and it sees a strategic interest in maintaining uh, this uh, this relationship. Uh, just this week, there was a Chinese report uh, that Russia is now the number one um, uh, exporter. Uh, of oil uh, to China in 2023, in the first two months, uh, we're seeing an increase in 23% of uh, oil uh, uh, Russian oil sales to uh, to China. The the transactional point that uh, uh, Katrina uh, uh, brought up that's that's also uh, visible in how China is handling uh, this uh, relationship with uh, with um, uh, with Russia. So uh, for NATO, for what to expect, I think again this will be a uh, long uh, war. Uh, this will be something that uh, will probably uh, will see China hedging publicly, but uh, uh, just uh, uh, in private conversation and in what's happening between the, the two countries, it's only increasing its economic uh, uh, ties and energy ties with uh, Moscow because it sees a benefit uh, in that. Well, Joyce, I know we have to let you go. That's Joyce Karam. Uh, she's senior news editor at El Monitor. Joyce, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. On Saturday, President Putin made a surprise visit to the occupied Ukrainian city Mariupol. Russian forces captured the city more than a year ago, which was a key and and brutal battle. The trip comes after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Putin. Jennifer, remind us the details of that warrant. Right. So this is from the International Criminal Court, the ICC, um, which uh, Russia um, and incidentally the United States are both not party to the uh, treaty that created it. Um, They issued an arrest warrant for war crimes. These are specifically, uh, it's you know, if you have to pick, there are lots of them to choose from. These are specifically um, allegations related to the forcible removal and um, re-education, in quotes, and um, re-homing, essentially, of thousands of Ukrainian children um, who, you know, some who have been uh, orphaned, others who maybe not so much. Um, But Russia is accused uh, credibly of having taken um, hundreds, if not thousands, of Ukrainian children, put them in um, re-education type of schooling to make them, you know, true Russian patriots. And then many of them sent to live with Russian families, some very far away from Ukraine. Um, Many Ukrainian parents are still alive and are still trying to find where their children have gone. Um, So that's what those war crimes, that's what that warrant was specifically about. Um, Now, you know, whether that uh, is actually going to end up in you know, Putin ever sitting in front of a court in The Hague um, is, a, is a very different question. Um, as I said, Russia is not party to the ICC. Um, basically, countries that are party to the ICC now have a, um, a legal obligation that if Putin comes to their territory, they are obligated to arrest him and send him to The Hague. The likelihood of that happening, of Putin going anywhere like that, um, you know, slim to none likely. But I think it's important to remember that with, um, you know, similar war crimes tribunals that we saw specifically with the former Yugoslavia, there were war criminals, leaders like Ratko Mladic and Radovan Karadic. 
um, who it took lots and lots of years for them to finally be brought to justice, but they ultimately were. Um, many of you know many times caught uh, living in hiding under assumed names and assumed identities. So. You know, I don't think it's hopeless, um, but it was a very um, brazen move, I will say, of Putin to make this trip. He hasn't made a lot of trips like this. And to Mariupol, which is, you know, the scene of, of the flattening of this city by Russian forces in their attempt to take it. And then now he's, you know, going and, and glad handing with people and touting all of the great things that Russia is doing to rebuild this city. Well, they flattened it in the first place. So it was really just kind of a giant um, uh, offensive uh, gesture, I will say, um, on Putin's uh, on Putin's part here. Well, let's turn to another story. The New York Times is drawing ire for a newly published claim dating back to the Iran hostage crisis in 1980. The report alleges that a prominent Republican close to then-candidate Ronald Reagan sought to sabotage President Jimmy Carter's re-election by encouraging Iran to prolong the hostage crisis. Uh, Katrina, what new details does this report include? Yeah, this is the idea that has been around for a long time, um, but never really with a smoking gun, that, uh, as you say, uh, the release of the hostages was delayed. It, it turns, I think, on, on two things. Uh, one is if uh, the director of the CIA at the time, William Casey, who was Ronald Reagan's campaign manager, went to Spain to meet with um, four Iranian uh, officials and uh, there's a cable uh, that seems to indicate that he he was indeed in Spain. That doesn't mean he met with uh, Iranian officials, but th- the argument is, um, is certainly that it that it does. Um, and 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 that is part of uh, it, these concerns that the the Reagan campaign deliberately uh, pushed that out, which which would be an extraordinary thing for for Carter to to of course have dealt with because he he, he lost that election and and as we all know, American presidents um, gain a lot of credit uh, and make a lot of effort to bring Americans home. Well, we know former President Jimmy Carter is in hospice care. He's been in hospice care for several weeks. Jen, what effect will these allegations have on his legacy? Well, you know, as Katrina said, this has been a a, uh, rumor slash conspiracy theory that has been out there for a very long time. The Carter camp in particular has, you know, essentially kind of pushed out the idea that um, you know that there, he he was he was robbed essentially. Um, that you know he could have gotten the hostages out. Um, I think more broadly, you know, Carter's legacy on foreign policy has <laughs> since then um, been darkened by the hostage crisis. That is how he is remembered by many Americans. Remember, this was kind of the the dawn of the twenty four hour cable news cycle, where you had cable news you know anchors following the day-to-day, um, you know, uh, struggle of the hostages and tracking this. Americans were kind of glued to their television, trying to, you know, watching for, for all of these these days, watching these hostages. And I think Carter had a much broader legacy. He did, you know, a lot of good in, in Middle East peace uh, efforts and, and many other places in foreign policy. And I think this could potentially go some way to help dampen that. But in general, I don't think a ton of people are going to change dramatically what they think about Jimmy Carter. Most people are pretty clear on what they think about Carter and his legacy. Um, And, you know, he's very much well known for his post-presidency and all of the good things he's done with Habitat for Humanity, etc. So, you know, I don't think this is going to dramatically change it, but it is potentially, you know, vindication for for Carter and and his camp that, look, we've been trying to say this all this time, that 
this happened. So we'll see how that goes. Now let's turn to France, where the fight over retirement age continues. President Emmanuel Macron is moving forward with his plan to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. It's a plan he's pushed through Parliament without a vote by invoking a special constitutional power. Macron argues the change is necessary to keep the French economy afloat as France's population ages and life expectancy lengthens. More than a million people have marched in recent weeks, and transportation workers, teachers, and garbage collectors are all entering their ninth round of strikes in protest. Britain's King Charles canceled an upcoming visit to France due to the violent protests in some parts of the country. France's current retirement age is 62, and it's low compared to other countries in Europe. NPR's Morning Edition spoke to Lisa Bryant, a reporter based in Paris, about what these protests say about France's work culture. The French are fiercely protective of their universal health care and generous pensions. And it's a choice society has made, work hard, pay high taxes, but also retire at a relatively young age with a high standard of living. So the past two months, there have been hundreds of thousands of people marching against the reform. Um, also a series of nationwide strikes, including public transport, refinery workers, teachers, garbage collectors. And in many parts of Paris, the trash hasn't been collected in more than a week. And there are huge piles of garbage in much of the city. Now, despite the protest, Macron is firm on the decision to pass this legislation, raising retirement age. But the Macron government narrowly survived a vote of no confidence, which, if it had passed, would have meant creating an entirely new government or calling for new elections. Katrina, how has this issue affected France's parliament? It's been absolutely huge because, as as your report said, these protests against raising the uh, age of retirement have gone on since January. But only through Macron turning to this special ability to bypass the National Assembly have they really turned violent. All that rubbish, all that trash that you just heard about is now uh, being set on fire. The Eiffel Tower is shut. Uh, The town hall in Bordeaux uh, has been raised. And I think this is where it gets very interesting because Macron, as you say, has completely stuck to his line. He's actually used this special constitutional power before. So although people are saying it's not democratic and he's certainly avoided a vote, it is within uh, the setup of France to use it. It's called Article 49.3. He's used it, I think, 10 times before. And he's surviving uh, votes of confidence narrowly. I mean, he's under huge pressure. He's lost easily, easily any support from the left, but also um, from some of the far right. Uh, His point has been we've done 175 hours of debate on this. um, And because it hasn't resolved, he seems to think that he doesn't need to continue debating it. He's simply done his own thing. But it it, it is a move that uh, opinion polls show two thirds of the population uh, do not back. And uh, It's got very awkward symbolism, I think. Uh, Cancelling that visit from King Charles now means he goes on his first trip abroad to Germany rather than to France. And one of the reasons I think it was cancelled is that they were going to meet in Versailles and Bordeaux. And uh, the left is accusing Macron of behaving like a king. Uh, And so uh, in addition to those claims, you've got all parts of France now really being affected, ports, nuclear reactors, and of course workers who simply don't want their knees to go as, as they age. That's Katrina Manson. She covers cyber and national security at Bloomberg. Also with us, Jennifer Williams, deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. And earlier, we were joined by Joyce Kanam, senior news editor at Al Monitor. Thanks to you all. 
the Roundup, the Roundup this week, the Northern Hemisphere celebrated the spring equinox on Wednesday. With it came the Festival of Nowruz. The Persian New Year celebrates a nearly 4,000-year-old tradition known as the Festival of Fire. It's linked to the Zoroastrian religion. And millions of Muslims around the world are marking the holy month of Ramadan, which began on Thursday. Over the next 30 days, observing Muslims fast and abstain from certain activities from dawn until dusk. At night, family and friends gather and feast in a festive atmosphere. We wish all our listeners observing a happy month. Mike Hidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast with help from Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.